Hello, my name is Candy Hammond, and I am one of the hosts of Arts Week here on WOMR. In celebration of International Women's Day, I am so honored and excited to be speaking today with New York Times bestselling author, neuroscientist, yogi, and empathy warrior, Lisa Genova. Lisa is the author of five bestselling novels, one also bestselling nonfiction book, Remember, and we'll soon have two and maybe actually three, I think possibly movies made from her books. She also has a TED Talk with about 8 million views and recently created and taught a TED course on how to boost your brain and memory. And in her spare time, became a certified yoga instructor and has been taking improv classes, which I totally have to talk to her about. To me, she is the absolute perfect person to talk to about the topic of one of her talks, What Would You Do If Nothing Could Stop You? Clearly, she is the embodiment of this. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to me today. I'm Thank honored you, and thrilled and a little bit intimidated and nervous. Oh my goodness, <laughs> please stop. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. Yeah, no, it's, but you know, I feel like, I mean, I think a lot of people do know your story, but I thought maybe if you could just briefly tell people a little bit about your history, like, okay, you were, you know, a Harvard educated neuroscientist. And maybe we can start there or how you ended up doing that even <laughs> like. Right. So you and I were just talking offline a little bit that mm -hmm. my background was doing research on the molecular neurobiology of drug addiction. So I was mm -hmm. a neuroscientist. I worked at Harvard and Mass General and at the NIH. Um, I did not ever take any writing classes. <laughs> writing was not anywhere on my radar. I had no ambition to write a novel. Um, that all sort of spun out very accidentally. Um, my grandmother had Alzheimer's and she had Alzheimer's later in life. So it wasn't early onset like Alice, mm -hmm. um, but it was very upsetting. We, you know, my grandmother had nine children, 30 something grandchildren. Wow. We loved her. She was a wonderful woman and I was close with her. So as the neuroscientist in my family, I was the one to educate everyone about this disease, even mm. though I didn't know much about it to begin with. So I did my homework and I read the, the current understanding of the science and the clinical management, and then read books like the 36 hour day, which were very helpful in terms of caregiving, but everything was you know, very clinical and very scientific mm -hmm. and was written from the point of view <clears throat> of an outsider. So right. the doctors, scientists, social workers, caregivers, and they lack the point of view of the person with it. And while I had great sympathy for my grandmother, I felt so bad for her and all that she was losing. She was losing, she didn't recognize who we were and she didn't recognize mm -hmm. her face in the mirror or her house as her home. And this beautiful life that she had built was not familiar to her, recognizable to her mm -hmm. anymore. So it felt so bad for her. And I felt so bad for all of us that's sympathy. What mm. I wanted was empathy, which is feeling mm. with her, but I didn't know how to do that. I was really uncomfortable around her Alzheimer's at the time. I think in part, because I was so emotional about it. It was so upsetting. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to be still and be with her, which is actually one of the practices of yoga as well. Can you be still in the pose mm. um, and <laughs> not be reactive to what's happening? But anyway, I, I recognize that, well, interesting fiction is a place where you get the chance to walk in someone else's shoes and experience empathy everything i'm re reading is nonfiction, 
Hmm. And so I thought, well, someday maybe I'll write a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. So that was the seed for all of this. It just began That's with amazing. that one, that one idea. Wow. And so I'm curious, like somebody that has never taken a writing <laughs> class or, I mean, what did, did you have a mentor? Did you, I mean, how did you, you just wrote a book and yeah well I didn't <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know which was yeah. actually kind of helpful it is kind of helpful in sometimes. some ways right it was I to this day I don't mind being a student right in life it's mm -hmm. like if I can be if I can learn something new that excites me um so I wasn't afraid of learning something new so I did read a lot on craft I read books like Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg, um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, On mm -hmm. Writing by Stephen King, so I, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, which I'm actually mm -hmm. rereading right now. Oh, um, so I read a lot to sort of mm -hmm. get me sort of psychologically and spiritually aligned with the idea of creating and then just the nuts and bolts of like, how do you write dialogue and how do you write a chapter? So I did that. And then I also did my homework with respect to Alzheimer's, which was I then did my research. I talked to neurologists and neuropsychologists and genetic counselors and people who had young onset Alzheimer's mm -hmm. or who were still in the earliest stages who could talk about what it feels like to have mm. it. So I could try to uncover like, what does it feel like to have this? I could try and understand empathy. Um, so that was how I did it. I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I sat down every day and tried to get words down on the page, which is mm -hmm. turns out what you're supposed to do mm -hmm. when I got really scared and discouraged because I'm like, well, who am I to be doing this? I have no <laughs> background in this. I should be, you know, doing brain research and, um, and I wasn't earning a living at the time and it just felt a little nuts. Um, I would go into libraries and bookstores and look at all the mm -hmm. books and think, well, these people all did it. Why not me? Wow. Yeah. It's, so it gave amazing. me permission. I think giving like regularly, not just a singular moment, but ongoing, giving myself permission both to begin and to continue was huge with that first book. Mm -hmm. No, that's what, you know, it, I was so, and I would encourage anybody listening to this to go and watch that video that you did of, you know, what would you could, what would you do if you could do anything? And because I mean, that courage to, you know, and you, you laid out, it's like, you know, you were a single mom and, you know, you didn't have a job at the time. And I mean, those are all real things and it's yes. scary. Yes. It's, it was uh, a very unreasonable decision, right? So I had, <laughs> had just gotten divorced for the first time and, and that was not a marriage I thought was going to end. I mean, he I had been with him since I was 18, I was 33 mm -hmm. and it wasn't, my decision to, to end the relationship. So it was, I was fairly heartbroken and sort of my world was tipped upside down because and you I had a baby. <laughs> I felt I had failed for the first time, right? I had a three-year-old. Oh, three-year-old. Um, okay, yeah. yeah, it was it was very scary. And so the very safe thing for me to do at the time would have been to go back to work to the job mm -hmm. that I was trained for and educated for and was paid for and I had health insurance and all the good things. So this this choice to write a novel at the time was very scary. It was very unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And, and yet it was when I kept asking myself, well, what, what are you going to do next? Um, the sort of logical in my head 
answer was go back to your job, go back to work. Mm -hmm. But then this other voice, this other answer, which didn't come from any sort of logical intellectual place. It was like an intuitive place. It was a soul place. Mm -hmm. It was, you want to write the book. Mm-hmm. And I tried to talk myself out of that. I said, well, that's stupid. Like you don't know how to write a book and you're already in this very uncomfortable place of, you know, divorced single mom. Um, you should not do that. But I kept, it kept coming louder and louder. And it was every time I tried to build an excuse around it, it was, well, what if I could get rid of that excuse? Cause it was like, well, what are people going to think of me? People are going to talk about, well, Lisa's mm-hmm. lost her mind. What is Lisa doing? Um, well, what if I didn't have to care about what anyone thought? What if I didn't have to care about money? And I realized that that's a very real concern. And it was, in fact, at some point I would have to earn a living doing this, or I would have to call it a hobby and go mm-hmm. back to what I'm, I can get paid for. But I thought for a moment, could I get by with not earning a living and try this? And the answer was, you know, you, you could. Mm-hmm. So like miraculously, I did. I took this leap into something that was very unknown to me with no guarantee of success. Um, and it has led to a life that feels incredibly purpose-driven and rewarding, mm-hmm. um, and fun. I get to make up stories for a living <laughs> that no, help people that help. Yeah. So, yeah. No. And what's, you know, been as, as a writer myself, what I have found so inspiring and it's like, I hold on like this little like beacon of hope that, you know, it didn't, all go miraculously this wasn't like some rom-com where it's like yes and then this dashing you know editor comes out of nowhere and buys your book not even close (laughs) yeah I mean yeah yeah okay so you're alluding to it it did not go as planned Uh, once I finished the book I thought okay well now I'll find an agent who will then find a publishing house and that will all just happen and it did not. Um, I sent out a hundred query letters to literary agents. I heard back from three asking to read the book. Two read it and declined. One I've never heard back from. So <laughs> nobody wanted it. And at this point, it was well. What are my choices? It was stick the book in a drawer and go back to work doing what I was trained and educated to do, or. I could self-publish this. This was back in 2007 when self-publishing was really not a common thing. It was kind of frowned on. It was frowned upon. Yes, yes. It had stigma. And I understood that certainly as a scientist, we can't publish without it being peer reviewed Mm. or anyone can publish anything. So, you know, while I was hesitant, I also knew this is my only shot to get it in readers' hands and see if anyone wants to read this book to Mm -hmm. see, you know, if this book could have legs. So I was giving myself one year and if in that time the book didn't get and get to a publishing house and, and give me, you know, a a career that I could work with, then I would have to go back to my old Mm -hmm. life as a neuroscientist. Um, And within 10, it took 10 months um, for it to go. I was selling it on Cape Cod from the trunk of my car. I was, you know, I was pregnant with my second child and I was, (laughs) you know, yeah, I was going to where the sidewalk ends in Chatham and yellow umbrella Brewster bookstore mm-hmm. and on and on, like just here, can you want to carry a couple of copies on consignment? And uh, I was begging people in book clubs to read it and post online reviews. So it was, it wasn't fancy or sexy. It was slow. <laughs> it was, a, it was plotting. It was, um, it was, yeah. So in 10 months, word of mouth led to um, enough people like the Bo- a Boston Globe columnist wrote a review 
Um, an author read that who had originally self-published her memoir. Um, and then we got in touch and she introduced me to her agent and her agent became my agent. And then she sold it to Simon and Schuster and six months later, they re-released it. And then everything else that then followed, like it was on the New York Times list for 59 weeks. And That's then, amazing. you know, as you know, it became a movie with Julianne Moore and it just, it's, and then it, and then it gave me permission to continue writing um, because I then had a contract with Simon Schuster to write more books. Wow. And what's been so interesting is, you know, you've certainly, to me, you've really like melded perfectly your careers, your two different careers, because all of your books are about different neuro, is neuro disease, is that the correct term? Or um, yeah, neurological disease, neurological conditions, or mental Thank illness. You. Yeah. Anything from the neck up, I feel is fair game <laughs> for me. Yeah. And so this is really helpful, Candy, because I think for people, and I certainly had this when I began writing fiction, it was like, oh no, I've abandoned everything I've ever learned mm -hmm. and all that I worked so hard for to now do this other thing that doesn't seem to really make any sense. Mm -hmm. And what I have since learned in the process of writing Still Alice and then certainly all the books since is that this idea that nothing is wasted, that yeah. anything that you put yourself into that you love, that you're passionate about, that you experience in life can become part of the tools in your toolkit or part of just how you view the world or what you have to offer. Mm -hmm. And so my life as a neuroscientist has given me um, the interest, the passion, the compassion to ask these questions and of what does it feel like to live with these disorders and conditions and um, to help communicate that in a way that has both the validity of the science and mm -hmm. the medical treatment and the lived experience and the empathy of the people who live with it. Yeah, no, that I think that you've probably done more to help people dealing with the diseases and families than anybody. I mean, the things that you've written about from autism to Huntington's disease to, you know, I can't even name all of them, but, you know, and Alzheimer's Thank and you. things. I think it's just, um, it really, it is remarkable because yeah, there's nothing that the empathy is the perfect word because that's is what is missing so much when people are researching these things and they're looking for some help and some support and um, yeah and it's I, scary I, yeah. right yeah. I think that there's a special taboo that goes along with anything that anyone has from the neck up right so there's this special kind of fear and otherization that happens mm -hmm. if you've got something going on that's neurological um, mm -hmm. so I think that fiction is really the perfect place to humanize um, what it's like to to have a brain injury or bipolar mm -hmm. disorder or Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So I've fallen yes. into this sort of magical niche that really nobody else was in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I get to write about something that really does tap into what I actually am trained and educated to talk about. Mm -hmm. No, and obviously, and in an educated way, you know, you're not just speculating, you know what you're talking about, you do your research and yes. to the point where now when you, I mean, I am kind of jumping all over the place here a little bit, but when you became a certified yoga instructor, was that just for you or was that for research in something 
It was definitely a little bit of both. So I'd Mm -hmm. been practicing yoga since after my oldest daughter was born in 2000 and, um, and love it. It's just a really Mm -hmm. important part of my mental and physical and spiritual health. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I began writing inside the O'Briens and I had the main character, dad is a cop and he's got four children in their twenties. And I decided that this story would be told from his point of view and the point of view of one of his children who has a 50, 50 chance of inheriting what mm-hmm. dad has and can find out in a blood test. And so do you want to know? Um, mm-hmm. and I decided to make her a yoga instructor. Mm-hmm. And okay. so in that decision, I was sort of laughing to myself because I thought, <laughs> oh, good. Now I have the perfect excuse to go do a yoga teacher training. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was really helpful to dive in deeper and to really understand um, Katie O'Brien's world and perspective and how how she views the world might be a useful way for her to deal mm-hmm. with what's happening to her and maybe in relation to her father as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what I, I wanted to make sure that I, I touched on a little bit is like, what kind of advice do you give to other, not just women, but just people that, you know, about diving in to things that, you know, that may seem like you were saying there was no, you know, it didn't make sense that you were going to do what you ended up doing. And, you know, how, how can people screw up that courage to to do that uh... yeah I mean it's it it depends on people's situations like I realize not everyone can just say okay I'm 100% diving into this whole new thing and I think that Mm -hmm. you know for me at the time if I had not been already unemployed and had not been so uprooted from a life that made sense to me. I don't know that I would have made the decision to r- mm-hmm. write a novel. I think because I was starting from like, well, I'm not, I, I'm not going to quit. I wasn't going to quit my job to go write. Right, so that right, might right. not be a realistic option for folks. But if you're called to write, if you're called to paint, you're called to start a business, you're called to start a nonprofit and you're hesitating because you have fears. Um, well, what if it doesn't work out? Or what if I'm not qualified? Or what if I you know, expose some vulnerability and people call me out on it. Um, Okay, those are fears. You can write those down Mm -hmm. maybe to get them out of you. But then what if it works out great? Um, I tell people like you can't know unless you give it a try and we're all going to be dead someday is sort of another (laughs) place I go, which is a little bit morbid. But when people come to me in book signing lines and say, oh, I really want to write a novel, but I haven't found the time yet or I'm just afraid to start. I usually just sort of cheekily look at them in the eye and say, you know, you're going to be dead someday, right? (laughs) So we don't have forever. Yeah. Yeah, So it's like, get to it, people. Like this is not a dress rehearsal. Like if you want to give something a go, give it a go. And so maybe it's, um, you know, like Glennon Doyle, when she began writing, she got up an hour early every morning and went in her bedroom closet and wrote, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't need as much time maybe as you think. So, mm-hmm. you know, I try to shoot for when I'm writing a thousand to 1500 words a day. That's, mm-hmm. I don't know, like four pages. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a lot. So, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to, doesn't have to be an everyday pace like that. So there's probably time in your day to mm-hmm. approach the thing you are yearning for 
um, already. I would mm -hmm. check your phones, people. How many hours a day are you on social exactly. media? Maybe what, not forever. I say, well, what if I want to cut, what if I cut that in half for the next month and devote all of those hours to this thing I want to try? Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things yoga gives me is this idea of being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Because a lot of us, that. yeah, so a lot of us, if we're going to try something new, we get uncomfortable really fast. And then we, we, we retreat like, ah, that felt scary. Never mind. Never yeah. mind. Um, yoga helps us to stay in the pose, right? Even when you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So can you breathe and let the discomfort pass and know that it's temporary? It helps me write. It helps me stay in the seat. So it's super uncomfortable to face that blank page. Yes. I could just get up and go eat some food out of the refrigerator. I could get up and go, you know, do a chore in the house or, or check, mm -hmm. you know, Instagram, or can I just stay and mm -hmm. let be in the discomfort? So I think that, um, and you and I talked about this, like for my newest book, my main character is an aspiring stand-up comedian. So I took a stand-up comedy writing class and did some comedy and I did a five minute set this fall. I was terrified. Oh my gosh. Um, I can't imagine anything. Here, here. No. Can I just tell you, like mm -hmm. doing the thing that you're afraid to do is so when you get to the other side of that, mm -hmm. it is so much fun. You've got bragging rights. You feel more mm -hmm. confident. You've done this thing. Um, it leads to what's next. You can't do the next thing until you do the first thing. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, no. I encourage people to try forget and and forget about worrying what other people will think. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness. Who cares? Nobody knows yeah. what they're doing. They're all, it's all made up. <laughs> it's all made up. Everybody's just doing what they think they have to do. You don't have, it's all made up. You can make up your own rules and don't worry about what other people think. I have found that's one of the nice things about getting a little older. Cause I remember years ago, um, I think it was a therapist that said to me, never compare your insides to someone else's outsides. And it took me forever to figure out. I thought, everybody else had it completely together except me. And then, you know, you get older and you figure out, it's like, no, like you said, we're all just faking it. We're all just doing the best we can. And, you know, it's, um, yeah. And right. who cares? And who cares? And what are the, yeah. the saying, uh, my daughter reminded me of this one the other day, comparison is the thief of joy. I think right? this is the third time I've heard that quote in two days. Yeah. I think I need to be thinking a lot about that. That's a great quote. It yeah, is so, so true. don't worry about anyone else. They don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with what you're uniquely here to do, right? So mm -hmm. this is it, folks. This is this is your one wild and precious life. And if you're called to something, mm -hmm. that's pro there's probably gold there. Like that's you. That's mm -hmm. something magical for you. And mm -hmm. um, I would open that box. No, no, that's extremely good advice. And um and I, I kind of want to pivot as we, you know, we're getting down in time a little bit, but um, I, well, I loved your book, Remember, and, and it was so reassuring that every time I couldn't remember an actor's name or, you know, where I left my phone or my keys or whatever, it did not mean that I was developing Alzheimer's. And, um, but I just, you had well, for one thing, you know, one of the things, and actually you did it on this video that I was watching, I think you talked about breathing for one thing, because as somebody that tends to suffer from anxiety, um, I saw you, I think, or I heard you on um, a podcast or something, but you did, you talked about how when 
you're anxious, you tend to be like, <laughs> you know, that kind of breathing. And if you can slow that down, I will tell people that's magic to be able to, you know, you can explain it better. I don't know if it's box breathing or what it is that you tell people to do. So, yeah, it's so you, you can't remember what you're not paying attention to. And if you are in an anxious state, if you are in a stressed out state, it's also stress, um, chronic stress in particular is really bad for memory. It, it makes it mm -hmm. much more difficult for us to retrieve what we already know. And it makes it difficult for us to lay down new memories. Um, and so if you're breathing, like you're running yeah. for your life, right? You have yeah. the stress response <laughs> is going and your heart is going, your breathing's rapid. And when that this happens, lots of physiological things are going on inside you. But one of them is it's shutting off your ability to make decisions and you're not making memories. You're just searching mm -hmm. for survival right now. Um, it turns out that you can sort of flip the, the stress response and your, your breathing can inform your body that you're safe. So if you breathe slowly in and out through your nose, it doesn't matter if it's the box mm -hmm. or not. The box is right. you breathe in, say to the count of four, you hold it to the count of four, you breathe out to the count of four, mm -hmm. hold it to the count of four, or just breathe in slowly in and out through yeah. your nose. And through the nose is important because if you are running for your life or if you're fighting to save your life, you're not breathing slowly in and out through your nose, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do that, you're informing your brain and body that you are safe. And then your brain and body can then trigger the physiology to match that. And so you'll calm down and you'll I be able to better it. remember things. But yeah, the biggest, I was finding when I was touring for Still Alice and then using the movie as a vehicle for conversation about Alzheimer's. And I've been trying to educate the world about Alzheimer's for a long time now. One of the things I was noticing is that everybody seemed to be pretty much afraid of every kind of forgetting especially over the age of 40, 50 and beyond. And everyone was assuming that every time they forgot anything, this was a sign <laughs> yeah. of memory impairment. And I thought, oh my God, everybody's anxious all the time about memory and that's going to cause a memory problem. <laughs> and it's going to make it really hard for us to distinguish if there is an actual problem, something mm -hmm. due to Alzheimer's, if we think that everything is, is Alzheimer's. So I'm like, oh, people don't know the owner's manual. So there's this misconception out there that memory is supposed to be perfect. And so I wrote, remember, in as a response to these questions that I was getting in the ladies room and in book signing lines, and it was, you know, why do I forget where I put my keys and my glasses and my phone? Mm -hmm. And, and how come I walk into a room and don't know why I'm in there? Mm -hmm. Or how come I have to write down my to-do list or I won't remember to, to do it? Um, why am I forgetting people's names? So these are sort of the top things that people are, are mm -hmm. worried about. And so I explain why they happen and why they're normal, which is <laughs> so reassuring. Um, what to look out for, like what's a real memory problem, what's not, turns out most everything we encounter is normal. Um, and then how to keep your brain healthy with respect to memory, because there are mm -hmm. things that we can do in life that aren't particularly complicated or sexy that can really make a significant impact on your ability to remember what happened today, tomorrow, and to prevent yourself from getting Alzheimer's mm -hmm. in the future. No, and I and I highly recommend both your book and um, in your TED Talk, you give such good advice. And the one in our, our last two and a half minutes, I will confess to, you know, my, I am not a great sleeper. And, and that freaks me out all the time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it freaks a lot of people sleeper. out. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a tough one. And I have a lot of compassion for folks who have trouble sleeping. And as a woman, I've gone through phases in my life with, you know, pregnancy and raising kids and menopause. Mm-hmm. And it's just with men, it's prostate and you're up to pee all night. It's like, it's sleeping is tough for a lot of us. And if we make it a priority, we can get better at it. And every mm-hmm. night we can give ourselves a good night's sleep. Yeah, you can celebrate that night. We're mm-hmm. very resilient. You know, having a bad night's sleep remember. last night does not mean your brain is ruined. Um, but every time you can give it a good night's sleep, just know you're helping it. You're giving yourself an opportunity for things to be better remembered. Um, lots of wonderful, important things are happening biologically while you sleep. Mm-hmm. So try not to panic and just do it. Google things you can do to help sleep. Uh, Matthew mm-hmm. Walker has a great Ted talk on that. Um, I know every neuroscientist I know makes sleep a priority. So mm-hmm. It's, so there's, there's a, yeah, so it's obviously important. And the other thing, and again, we're getting really low on time, but I would just, again, recommend your book and your TED talk, but exercise and eating well, and um, those are also what's good for, I love your, you know, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. And, and those are good things to remember. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's no magic pill for preventing Alzheimer's. Everybody wants the pill. Just give me a pill to prevent it. And, um, you know, at some point we may get to that. It's the research Mm -hmm. is as as exciting and, and, and hopeful and heading in that direction in a very real way. But in the meantime, all of the things you mentioned, and I go into detail in the book and and certainly Mm -hmm. on the Ted talks, um, but there are things that we can do ways of living that if we make them habit will be the magic pill for us and help you prevent, prevent you from getting Alzheimer's in the future. Well, I think. You just ended this in the perfect place, Lisa. I think so. I think that you know, don't let fear stop you from living your dreams, and take care of your brain and your body, and because uh, we're all gonna die, according to Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Candy. I can't thank you enough for talking to me today. Oh, it's been really yeah. fun. Thank you for yes. choosing me to talk yes. to. Yes, and happy International Women's Day to everybody. No. Happy International Women's Day. (laughs) Thanks.